Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. We return with our interview with Scott Ritter. He's chastising former U.S. Ambassador Michael McFaul for his failure to appreciate history and the words of his, of his historical predecessor and present CIA director, William Burns. Enjoy. Why don't you read the memorandum written by your predecessor, William Burns, who in the aftermath of the 2008 decision to bring in Ukraine, wrote a memorandum called Nyet means Nyet, no means no. And he pretty much said straight up, this is a red line for Russia. We know it. The Russians have said so. And if we continue to push for Ukraine to be brought in, and here's the important part, because this was said in 2008, 2009, if we continue to do this, Russia will invade Ukraine and Ukraine will lose the Crimea and the Donbass. This was written right there by a U.S. ambassador in 2009, and we ignored it. We continued to expand. We continued to push for Ukraine's admission. We fomented a coup d'etat in February 2014, the so-called Maidan Revolution. It was a coup put together by the United States, the CIA, the European Union, that empowered these radical neo-Nazi Stepan Bandera worshiping thugs to take over, kick out the legitimate government, install a pro-American government, and then they proceeded for the next eight years to declare war on the ethnic Russians of Ukraine. Go back to Vladimir Putin's speech of 2005 to be one of the greatest geopolitical catastrophes, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the disenfranchisement of significant populations of Russia, and he said, we have to protect them. So what is Russia supposed to do when a Nazi regime in Ukraine declares war on an ethnic Russian population? And it's not just a theoretical war. They stuffed 150 people into a building in Odessa in May of 2014, set it on fire, and killed 84 of them. They raped, murdered, pillaged, brutalized, you know, a million, millions of other Russians, killing thousands of them. And for eight years, from 2014 to 2022, they carried out a war against the Russian population in the Donbass, one where the former Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko, said, while our children go to school, your children will cower in the basements because we will shell you every day. 14,000 people died. The West ignored it. Did try to put together ostensibly a peace agreement, the Minsk Accords, 2015, negotiated by the French and the Germans. The Ukrainians promised to sign on. Russia was an observer, but it never was finalized. Why? We now know Petro Poroshenko, that same uh, former president. It was a sham, he said. It was a smokescreen designed to buy time while NATO built up our army so that we could forcefully kick the Russians out of the Donbass and recapture the Crimea. That's what's called diplomacy in NATO terms. Mm -hmm. And was this just theoretical again? No. In 2015, the United States built a permanent training facility on Ukrainian soil where every 55 days we trained Italian and Ukrainian forces to NATO standards for the sole purpose of sending them east to fight and kill Russians in the Donbass. We brag about it. So now we come to Putin's speech in February, where he announces the special military operation. And what he said is, we are going to do this. We are going to liberate the Donbass. We are going to protect the Russians. And NATO, if you get involved, understand this. 
Russia will use the totality of its capabilities to defend itself. He never mentioned the word nuclear, but it was assumed that he meant that if NATO decided to intervene in Ukraine on Ukraine's behalf, that Russia would bring to bear the totality of its military capability. Now, Russia has nuclear doctrine. The nuclear doctrine only allows nuclear weapons to be used in one of two instances. One, if Russia is attacked first by nuclear weapons. Two, if the Russian nation is threatened by a conventional military attack, that the existence of the Russian state is threatened. NATO has been building up the conflict in Ukraine to be an existential conflict, meaning by design, they want to strip Ukraine away from the Russian orbit and put Russia into an untenable situation that will lead to the collapse of the Russian body politic and the return to the 1990s. By definition, this means they want to destroy Russia. That is an existential crisis. That is a threat to the existence of the Russian state. Russia knows this. They've seen through it. So they're calling NATO out. Don't even think about it. We're not going to play this game anymore. We told you it was a red line. You wouldn't agree to a diplomatic resolution in the Minsk Accords. You've sought to build up military forces to strip Ukraine away. And we're bringing this game to an end. That's what Putin has said. And he's re-emphasized that several times, that this is a red line. But he's not threatening to attack NATO. Russia doesn't initiate nuclear conflict. Russia will never initiate nuclear conflict. Seems like Biden is clearly in the propaganda war with the American public, trying to make it look like we're the innocent bystanders here and that nuclear war is unacceptable. And when, in fact, the real people talking about the nuclear war scenario are the West, not Putin, as you indicated. Washington also explicitly endorsed Ukraine's efforts to maximize its status as what they called a NATO-enhanced opportunities partner to promote interoperability. And I wanted you to speak to the fact that Ukraine's non-membership in NATO was a fiction based on this. In practicality, they were a NATO ally. You've talked and written quite extensively about the NATO encringement and the influence of the U.S.-led NATO forces leading up to the invasion itself. Can you speak a little bit more about that part of the threat that, that arguably provoked the Russian response with the invasion? Well, the the Russian response has come in in two phases. One is the decision to invade. And then the second one is the most recent decision to transform this from a velvet gloved special military operation into a steel fisted conflict termination operation. And both of these are derived from the, the presence of NATO and the posture of NATO when it comes to Ukraine. Prior to this conflict, starting in 2015, NATO, led by the United States, began a process of training the Ukrainian military to NATO standards. Indeed, there were several Ukrainian military units who met the qualification of NATO interoperability and were included in foreign deployments as NATO proxies. Ukrainian special forces were totally interoperable with NATO special forces. And the Ukrainian command staff was also being trained to NATO standards. So the Ukrainian military had become a veritable proxy of NATO, which is one of the reasons why when Russia made its move on Ukraine, one of the goals and objectives was the demilitarization of Ukraine, which uh, Russia said was to strip away the NATO influence. 
you know, people don't realize that when Russia made its move, so-called invasion, although it's not an invasion, it was doing so in response to the massing of 60,000 NATO-trained Ukrainian forces uh, in eastern Ukraine who were preparing to launch a major offensive action on the Donbass designed to uh, totally liberate it, to kick out the Russian influence. Let me ask you real quick, Scott, because I think I misrepresented a few shows ago. Well, I didn't misrepresent, but it was the Russian deputy foreign minister, actually, Sergei Vershinin, that had told the UN Security Council that 122,000 Ukrainian military forces were lined up at the front with Donbass with the possible intention of launching an offensive, rather than the commonly cited 60,000 number that you mentioned. This claim by the foreign minister was on February 17th, 2022. Do you remember seeing that 120,000 number? And, and, and are you pretty clear it was more like a 60,000 to be more accurate? Is that right? The 120,000 figure might represent the total number of Ukrainian forces deployed in the east. But the 60,000 were the NATO-trained shock troops that were being assembled for the specific purpose of launching offensive operations. Okay, thank you. But, you know, Russia's justification for this conflict was set forth under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, which allows self-defense. Now, people say, wait a minute, you're attacking. How is that self-defense? But self-defense under international law includes the notion of preemptive self-defense, something that dates back to 1836, Caroline Affair, been adopted and implemented and used over and over again. The last time it was used effectively was actually in 2003. The United States used preemptive self-defense as a justification for taking out Iraq, but we know that that was a lie. But in 1999, NATO used Article 51, preemptive self-defense, as a justification to attack Serbia. So this isn't something invented by Russia. This is international law. It is black letter law. In Russia, uh, again, Article 51, though, the people say, well, wait a minute, that's uh, self-defense from uh, from what? I mean, if Ukraine is preemptive self-defense against the 60,000 troops, that's Ukraine attacking the Donbass. That's not Ukraine attacking Russia. How could Russia get involved? Because Russia recognized the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk as independent republics, and they created a collective security arrangement and then used that, saying that Ukraine was getting ready to attack the collective security arrangement and Russia had to preempt. And people say, well, that's just absurd. That's Russia making stuff up out of thin air. Really? How did NATO justify going into Serbia? NATO is not a United Nations member. NATO has no status under the United Nations. But NATO argued that its collective membership constituted a collective security arrangement that allowed Article 51 to be invoked. So Russia just did what NATO did. Is also, I think, legitimated by the OSCE monitoring the missile strikes that were coming from the Ukraine side into the Donbass that week or so before the invasion itself because of the astronomical acceleration of those strikes and the amassing of those 60 to 120,000 forces. And as Poroshenko had indicated, they were just trying to buy time to strengthen all that as well. So I think that's really important. Hey, I I don't want to break your train of thought here, but also I wanted you to, before we I let you go in the, to also speak to the military situation as it stands today. One of the things that has really helped me understand this deal is your indications of the ratios of deaths when you look at Ukrainians versus Russians. The Russians have lost a lot of territory. 
arguably there's been some criticism of perhaps they didn't have the, the, the proper number of forces to execute their initial plans or whatever. But at the end of the day, by vacating these areas, it seems like Russia, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the rules of engagement by Putin are, are twofold to protect as many Russians from being injured and dying, that type of thing, in the military, as well as to protect the civilian population. However, even though amidst these Ukrainian gains, uh, territorial-wise, they, they've been great propaganda, psychological boost for those efforts. However, it's my understanding, and can you please let me know if this is true, that even though they gained this land, they still were continuing to suffer way disproportionate military casualty losses during that whole process and has essentially been weakened rather than strengthened from a military point of view. Is, is that true or false? No, that's an absolute true statement. Look, the Ukrainians have always had a manpower advantage. One of the puzzles of this special military operation is how the Russians thought they could win coming in with 200,000 troops fighting a Ukrainian establishment that had 260,000 regular forces and could be immediately supplemented by 300 to 500,000 additional reserves. Normally, an attacker wants a three-to-one advantage, and Russia was coming in with a one-to-three disadvantage. You know, And so the Russians have been sort of fighting that issue. But the Russian goal was never to destroy Ukraine or to do anything other than to free the Donbass and to create a, a neutral Ukraine that uh, would not be a member of NATO. And they were actually largely successful despite this numerical disadvantage. By the summer of 2022, Russia had lost about 6,000 troops dead. The number of wounded were probably closer to 15,000. Their allies lost probably another six to 8,000 dead, another 15,000 wounded. These are significant losses, but the Ukrainians had lost over 60,000 dead and at least 40,000 wounded. Now, some people will say, wait a minute, how do you lose 60,000 dead and 40,000 wounded? I thought the number of wounded should be three times greater than the, the dead. Normally, that's what you see. It reflects the reality that Ukraine is not in control of the battlefield. Normally, a military that's in control of the battlefield is able to evacuate its wounded. You know, there's a golden hour where a critically wounded person who otherwise might die, if he can be brought to medical care, can can be can, can live. The Russians are able to get their troops off the field in this golden hour. And that's why they have, you know, a lot of people who otherwise would have been dead are wounded. Uh, the Ukrainians can't. They're abandoning their wounded. Their wounded are left to die on the battlefield. And that's why you have 60,000 plus dead and uh, only 40,000 wounded. But by any stretch of the imagination, the Russians have destroyed the Ukrainian military. A military cannot suffer 100,000 casualties and just walk away. And so ostensibly, left to their own devices, Russia would have won the conflict by this summer. But NATO poured in tens of billions of dollars of military aid, effectively retraining, re-equipping, and reconstituting uh, the Ukrainian military, so much so that by September, they were able to launch major offenses in the Kharkov area, in the Kherson area. You know, Russia with 200,000 troops, you know, they suffered some casualties, they replaced them, but their numbers have never gone above this. There's a 1,000 kilometer frontage in, in Ukraine. That's 200 troops per kilometer. But you remember, they have to strip troops away to guard the rear areas, guard lines of communication, et cetera. Uh, and many of those troops aren't combat troops, they're logistics troops. So Russia ended up only having around 30 to 60 guys per kilometer of frontage. Go out and walk a kilometer and tell me how you're going to hold it with 30 to 60 guys. 
especially when the Ukrainians now, with this reconstituted NATO army, can mass 5,000 guys you know, on a five-kilometer frontage. That's 1,000 guys per kilometer. Russia can't win. So what Russia did is rather than fight and die in place, Russia opted to withdraw from indefensible positions and consolidate their defenses. And this is why the territorial grab by Ukraine looks so impressive. But if we, uh, if we don't look at the map, and if I just tell you straight up, hey, Pedro, in the last month, Ukraine has lost 30,000 dead, and the Russians have lost 200 dead. Who won that battle? Mm-hmm. You say the Russians. Right. Then I show you the map, and you go, oh, wait a minute, Ukraine won. No, territory isn't the name of the game. It's preserving your ability to fight. Ukraine has suffered huge losses. They've burned through their reserves, and they're getting ready to burn through their final reserves. They've amassed the final 60,000 troops in the Nikolaev area, and they're getting ready to launch one last desperate assault on Kherson, the city of Kherson, in hopes that they can capture it. They're not going to. They're all going to die. And that's that's where we stand. Ukraine has burned through the reserves that were so carefully built over the course of the summer. They don't have anything left. They have, yeah, 15,000 guys are going to get trained in Europe. Maybe they can assemble another 30,000 trained troops, but they're down, they're down to nothing. Russia, on the other hand, has mobilized. Partial mobilization, 300,000 troops. Those troops are pouring in. What is the status of those 300? I know it takes a while to get them to the front and that type of deal, but can you give us an update as to apparently Russia is strengthening their overall military position before doing whatever they're going to do. Can you basically project what you think is happening there? Well, first of all, the the 300,000 is from the reserves. But when Russia announced the mobilization, there's been about 100,000 plus additional volunteers that have come in. So the the numbers being processed right now are larger than 300,000. When these guys go through their reception centers, some of them are sent home. I mean, during World War II in the United States in the draft, 40 out of every 100 draftees were sent home as unfit for uh, service. And there's been a number of Russians that have been sent home as well. So they then mobilize more because the total number needed is 300,000. It's not that they're mobilizing 300,000 just to get, you know, 180,000. They need 300,000. Some of these troops, those with the, the most recent military experience uh, who, who still have retained a modicum of their combat skills have gone through the equivalent of what's called refresher training. And then they've been sent to the front. They're already on the front as replacements. Uh, they're going in, giving other troops that have been in combat for many months a chance to rotate out get some rest, go home, visit the family, et cetera. Other troops are being organized into um, motorized rifle divisions. And so these troops have to go through a more detailed training. And that's a process that's probably going to last until the end of November, early December. At that time, these troops will be brought in. And once Russia assembles the full combat capability uh, that is exists in this mobilization, then their new Unified Military Command, led by a general whose nickname is ominously Armageddon, is that you're going to see them unleash uh, not a, you know, the, the, the velvet glove special military operation. They're going to unleash the steel fist that's going to be the end of the Ukrainian military. And we already see this. This new general, Sirovokin, has um, unleashed a strategic air campaign that is destroying the critical infrastructure of Ukraine. You know, we're heading into winter and Ukraine will have no electricity, no running water, no services, nothing. And uh, this will greatly diminish not only the ability of the Ukrainian military to resist on the front line, but the will of the Ukrainian people to continue the fight. Mm -hmm. I fully anticipate that we're going to see the collapse of Ukraine as a nation state and as a combatant 
sometime in the spring of 2023. Very good. Well, listen, Scott, we really appreciate so much this update. Been following your work for many years. You are remarkably in the ballpark of what transpires. So the reliability of your projections is a, a historical record. So I just want to remind folks that we've had the great pleasure of visiting with former weapons inspector, writer, and lecturer, Scott Ritter. He was a weapons inspector in Iraq from 1991 to 1998. He left the military service and joined the United Nations Special Commission on Weapons Inspection in Iraq. Between 1991 and 1998, when he resigned, he also participated in 52 of those inspection missions, heading 14 of those I'm fascinated, as I am with all foreign policy issues, with what's transpiring in the Ukraine-Russian-NATO-US conflict. And once again, it's it's quite apparent that we are being lied to through a concerted effort of, of disinformation and incomplete information and those types of things. After studying so many foreign policy interventions by the United States during my lifetime, I have faith that there is a truth, but it doesn't come from our government. And therefore, using detective skills, using analytical deductive reasoning skills, and having a very substantial understanding of the historical false presentations of conflicts of the past by our government and its media is the only way to get close to the truth. And based on that approach, and as a matter of public record, namely the recordings of Bringing Light Into Darkness shows, I think our record is exceedingly more accurate, much more accurate than what we are told by our mainstream media and the NPR stations, etc. However, we try to keep it lighthearted on this show at times. And in that regard, I consider myself Inspector Clouseau. But do you have a show, Ask the Inspector, that if people are interested in more information that's more current and between the Bringing Light into Darkness episodes we have you on, can you tell us just a little bit about how people can access that show? What is it? It's called Ask the Inspector, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the show. I actually do three regular shows. Uh, one on Wednesday morning is with uh, Garland Nixon, who's a, a well-known radio personality and political commentator. And uh, that starts out on his YouTube channel. And then I think he moves it to something called Rockfin. But uh, so if you just simply Google Garland Nixon, Scott Ritter, you'll be able to find that channel. The other one I do is... Um, Every uh, Thursday night, I do it with uh, an, an old friend of mine and peace activist, uh, Jeff Norman, and we do a show called Ask the Inspector. And the, the origin of that is I have a Telegram channel and, and people uh, follow what I write and everything on that. And invariably, you know, these people want to ask questions. And so we decided to create a show that gives them the opportunity. So the whole show is premised on me answering questions posed by members in the audience. And again, that's a YouTube channel. But if you simply Google Jeff Norman, Scott Ritter, Ask the Inspector, uh, you'll get the link to that, can can do that. But every Thursday or Friday night, 8 o'clock, we'll, we do that show. And then I do something with a wonderful local peace activist named Cynthia Pooler. And uh, we do a 28-minute conversation every week. And again, Cynthia Pooler, Scott Ritter, you can Google it and you'll get the link. But on my Telegram page, which is just Scott Ritter at Telegram, I post everything I write, everything I do. When you when you send me a link to the show, I'll post that so people can listen in. And so if you just follow me on Telegram, you'll be able to access everything I write and everything I say. Well, we will send you that before the end of the week. And 
Again, thank you, Scott Ritter, for, for all your continued insights that you provide. It's, as I say, a propaganda war is unending in our country. We've been misled on just about every foreign policy issue that I've covered since this show began 20 years ago. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you for bringing light into darkness. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Have a great day. I'll be back in touch in the future. Okay. Send me that link. I sure will. Bye-bye. Okay, Peter. Have a good day. See you next week. Don't be late.